As of today, there have been over 14,000 deaths in the United States because of COVID-19. The world is on lockdown, not because of a virus, but because of what it does. War, disease, driving under the influence, all these are awful because they cause death. And death, whether we talk about it or not, has been the great human enemy for all of our existence. If you're like me, you've probably read more than you want to know about the Black Plague, about swine flu, about the bubonic plague, about MERS, SARS, Ebola, and other epidemics. You can't see news now without a count of new cases and a death count. We might flatten the curve and we may slow the virus, but the reality is we can't stop death. We may isolate to try and slow a virus down, but it really only postpones the inevitable. Nobody wants it to come sooner than necessary or to be as painful as this particular virus is, but death is more front and center now than normal. Well, I'm sorry if this is a gloomy start to an Easter message. But if you can't admit our ultimate challenge, and if you can't face our ultimate enemy, everything else is make-believe. What hope do you have? This weekend, we celebrate the Christian hope, where Jesus did overcome the ultimate challenge, and where He did defeat the ultimate enemy. Though death still has a 100% rate of infection, there is a cure. The resurrection of Jesus is a story about how God accomplished that cure. And I invite you to read about it in your Bible. Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the first Christian sermon. It's the very first time that this hope has been explained. It's the very first time that God's plan for the ages was uncovered in a Christian sermon. And that plan for the ages and that hope is simply this, that the hope for humankind rests solely in the resurrection of Jesus to which the eyewitnesses in the Bible attest. Eyewitnesses and the Bible attest to the fact that God raised His Son from the dead that we might have hope. And so this sermon begins about 50 days after Jesus was here. And it begins in an inauspicious way when Peter stands up in verse 14 and he stands with the eleven and he lifts up his voice and he addresses them and he says, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. That's a rather interesting uh, introduction to the very first sermon ever preached. I'm going to introduce you my topic and that is, the people are not drunk. He says instead that it's too early to be drunk 
And there must be some other explanation. So let's step back just a minute because it's really important that you understand the context in which this sermon is preached. We're told in chapter 1 that Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit like He had promised earlier and that was going to happen soon. And then at the first part of chapter 2, we're told that this is the Feast of Pentecost. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks and it happens 50 days after the Passover. But you'll recall Jesus was crucified right before the Passover began. He ate the Passover meal with His disciples before His crucifixion. And so, 50 days later, we have this Feast of Pentecost. Now, before we go any farther, I want you to stop and just say, do you remember 50 days ago? 50 days ago was February 22nd. You say, I don't remember February 22nd. February 22nd, well, let me just ask you this. Do you know how many COVID-19 cases there were in Italy? There were only 62. Do you know how many cases there were in the United States? There were only 15. And none of them had died from it in the United States then. 50 days is not a very long period of time. Well, Pentecost was the first part of the grain harvest. And it's one of the largest festivals and migrations to Jerusalem. In verse 9, he tells us who is in attendance. He said there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And they were all there. And it says they all heard them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. What he's trying to say is that the entire known world of the time had descended on Jerusalem and now was experiencing what it meant for the coming of the Spirit of Christ. Now, when the presence of the Spirit of Christ came, it resulted in this particular and peculiar phenomenon of tongues. The people, the disciples who were there with Peter were speaking in languages that were understood by the bystanders, but they were languages they had not learned. This is how it is every time that tongues show up in the New Testament. They're real human languages spoken somewhere in the world so that people can understand them. And then Peter stops and he explains for us what these tongues mean or what they signify. What is actually happening? And he says what is happening here is described by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. And Peter says, in the last days, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And he goes on to describe this. The sun will be turned um, to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the point he wants to leave them with. That if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. 
You see, Joel in Joel chapter 2 was speaking to people who were displaced, who were aliens and outcasts. And he told them in that chapter, the part that Peter didn't quote, that even now, declares the Lord, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. Then He goes on to say that There have been years that the locusts have eaten, but God will restore them. And then he finally gets to what is this new covenant promise, this promise that God is going to do it a new way and He's going to put His Spirit in the hearts of people. He's going to take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And he describes it in that way in Joel chapter 2 and he quotes it verbatim there in Acts. It's interesting because some rabbis thought that this festival of weeks or Pentecost was a celebration in part of the giving of the law to Moses. It was more or less an anniversary of the giving of the law. And now what God was doing was He was taking the anniversary of that first covenant and He was announcing that there is a new covenant. And this new covenant is going to be a time when people who are not God's people become God's people. It's going to be a time when God takes out a stony heart and puts in a heart of flesh and He writes His law on their hearts and He puts His Spirit within them. And what He's saying is that by quoting this Old Testament book is this. The phenomenon you are experiencing right now is God inaugurating His new covenant. In other words, What you are watching right now or listening to when you hear these tongues is a final chapter being written. Please hear me on this. You don't need to look at the news or conspiracy theories or any other thing to say the end is underway. Because what you have here in Acts chapter 2 is God announcing the end is underway. The sign of the end has come. The Spirit of God is now on His people. And that's what you see happening in Acts chapter 2. Now, how does this happen? How does God bring about this promise? How does He go about guaranteeing His grace? He brings it about by the resurrection in the crucifixion of Jesus. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
So here, Peter, as an eyewitness, interprets the events that he has seen in the last 50 days. He says, first of all, that Jesus is proved genuine by the mighty works and wonders that God performed through Jesus. All of the things you read about in the Gospels, the walking on water, the feeding the 5,000, the healing the blind, the healing the lepers, the raising of the dead, all of this done by God to uh, prove that Jesus is genuinely the Messiah. And so God authenticated His Son by these mighty works. Then Peter says, Jesus who was authenticated by the work of God in and through Him, this Jesus was delivered up by God's design and foreknowledge with the help of wicked men. That to me is one of the most staggering sentences in the whole Bible. Because it tells me that God meant for Jesus to be hung on the cross. Jesus did not somehow bumble His way into offending the religious leaders and so they executed Him. Jesus did not accidentally become a martyr. He was delivered up by God's design and foreknowledge. It was God's plan. And you need to know that salvation is only by free will. Salvation is by God's free will. And His free will alone, it is by His purpose. He meant for Jesus to be on the cross. In other words, what Peter is saying is that God is doing something through this crucifixion. This was not merely somebody being crucified like other criminals are crucified. God was at work. God was accomplishing His purpose. And Good Friday happened because God wanted it to. God purposed the pain of His Son that He might pursue the forgiveness of sinners. It's important to note, I think, also, how did, how did people help or contribute to this salvation? In what way did men help God with the salvation of the world? Peter's super clear here. They did it by crucifying His Son. That's the contribution the humans have to it. Or you might even think of it this way. We weren't there. So how do we contribute to our salvation? We contribute the sin that makes forgiveness necessary. Because it is God who purposed Jesus to go to the cross so that sin might be forgiven. And that would be awful. That would be tragic if that's all there was. But Peter goes on to say, God then raised Him up. And that it was impossible for death to hold Him. Yes, God had help in crucifying His Son. 
But God raised Jesus without any cooperation or assistance. He didn't need it. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, He proved that He was unopposable. He was unchallenged and unrivaled. Death's three-day celebration of darkness evaporated without so much as a whimper. The pain of death released the Prince of Life. Or you could say the Prince of Life was loosed from the prison of death. The pangs of death could not hold Him. When it's talking about the pangs of death, it's talking about the pain that death inflicts. Any of you who have lost someone know the pain that death inflicts. And that pain of death could not hold Jesus. Jesus not only overcomes the death, He overcomes the pain of the death. This is almost unbelievable. Because the pain of death does hold us. The pain of death causes us to make decisions. We're, we're all hunkered down at home because the pain of death is a very real thing right now. I'll tell you, the older I get, the more pain there is and the more useless my efforts in fighting it. But what we have here is God affirming that the pain doesn't win and death doesn't have the final say. And Peter tells us all this as an eyewitness. But then Peter adds the fact that the Scriptures have all along interpreted this experience also. Peter tells what it means as an eyewitness but he does so now by telling us that the Scripture intended us to get this all along. And in verse 25, he begins quoting from Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, he quotes it just verbatim. And he tells us that David uh, said, Your Holy One will not see corruption. You'll make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's a fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures evermore. And so he goes on then and he quotes again from Psalm 110, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. And what he's reasoning there is that David was talking about his Lord, who in turn was his son, who in turn was ascended and raised and victorious over his enemies. In other words, the Lord said to my Lord, live. David spoke of the resurrection of the greater David. He spoke of the resurrection of his great-great-grandson. And so Peter quotes these two passages and strings them together in such a way to argue that you should have been seeing this coming. 
And then his conclusion in verse 36 is this. Let all the house of Israel. So the house of Israel that was gathered from all of the corners of the globe. This house of Israel centered in Jerusalem just hundreds of yards away from where Jesus was crucified and buried. Let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now get that. That is that is a clear statement that ought to make a lump in your throat. He says that He has made Jesus Lord. So when you, when you see in the New Testament where it says Jesus is Lord, what Peter has in mind, what he is understanding God to have done through the crucifixion and resurrection is that Jesus is identified with Yahweh. The Old Testament God whose name they pronounced as Lord. It's translated in your Bible as Lord. The resurrection affirms that Jesus is God in the flesh. And then he says he made him Lord and Christ. Now, by Christ he means that Jesus was the anointed Messiah, the Deliverer. That He is a prophet greater than Moses, a king greater than David, a priest greater than any high priest. And the resurrection proves for us that Jesus is both God and Messiah. And He is this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, he was looking in the eyes, most likely, of the very people, some of the very people who had shouted just 50 days earlier, crucify him. But it's not much of a stretch to imagine that he looked down through time to people whose sins had alienated them from God. People who had declared themselves enemies of God by their own rebellion. So that He could look at you and at me and say, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then, then Peter concludes his message. And the response is recorded for us. And I think it's worth noting how people respond. Because if, if they're shooting that, if Peter's shooting that straight, saying, you crucified him, they're not going to be able to dodge it. They're not going to yawn and turn the channel. They're not going to wish that um, he would be more direct by any means. It says in verse 37, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the Word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now they said, what must we do? And he says they were cut to the heart. I, I want to remind you, he was saying this only 50 days after they had seen this Jesus crucified, buried, and raised. Merely a few hundred yards from where they were talking in that moment. It would have been so easy to simply walk over there, point to the tomb that had by that time begun to smell bad, and the whole thing would be over. There would be no discussion. No one would be cut to the heart. No one would have wondered what to do. No one would have repented. No one would have been baptized. The whole thing could have been over. And yet, no one raised so much as the slightest objection. The tomb was empty. It was just down the street. And Peter said, you crucified Him. The writer of Acts records they were cut to the heart. Peter didn't cut them to the heart. This newly arrived Holy Spirit cut them to the heart. It was this Holy Spirit that opened their eyes so that they could see what they had done. And the Holy Spirit opened their eyes that they might see what also they needed to do. And Peter said, among other things, it tells us, repent and be baptized. Take action that indicates that you believe that Jesus is who He said He was. That God was doing in the crucifixion of Jesus and His resurrection what God said He was doing. Namely, saving sinners and bringing them into His family. Repent and be baptized. A life of faith is always a life of repentance. Repentance means we turn from our previous direction to follow Christ. It means we turn from our previous affections to begin to love Christ. It means we turn from our sin and we desire to draw near to a holy God. It is the cross and res resurrection of Jesus that give us cause to repent. We don't need a crisis. We don't need a coronavirus. We don't need some um, scandal or collusion that says this is how the world is coming to an end in order to repent. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus calls us to repentance. 
You repent because your sin hung an innocent Savior on the cross. And you turn to God for your salvation. And you place your faith in the person and work of Jesus for your salvation. He says, repent and be baptized. I think, I think he's using baptism there as an expression of your faith. An act of obedience that says, I am all in on this. And so that's the response he's after. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. And trust that God delivers you through water just like He delivered the children of Israel through the Red Sea in the first giving of the first covenant. This second covenant then is marked by water also. And then He assures them, and I think this is so precious, and you have to see this. He assures them that the promise is for them. And I can assure you the promise is for you. Because, you see, what Peter's done here is he said, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is God taking the initiative to forgive you, to rescue you, to reconcile you to Himself, to express His love for you. It is God taking initiative for you to say, I love you. You say, God can never do that for me. I've been too awful. I've been too disinterested. I've been too preoccupied. I don't... Let me just tell you, the offer in the text in Acts chapter 2 is to the very people who hung Jesus on the cross less than two months earlier. They hated God. They killed their own Messiah. And now they are being offered forgiveness freely if they will repent. They are going to be given the Spirit of God Himself put in their hearts. God's going to open their eyes. He's going to take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He's going to give them ears to hear and eyes to see. And you are right. They don't deserve it. Just like you and I don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve, they deserve anything but a beautiful gift. And what Peter does is he assures them that now the offer stands in front of them that they might be partakers of this new covenant, this new promise that God will be their God and they can be God's people. tells us 3,000 believed and were baptized in that very event. And in the 2,000 years since, every Christian that has ever come into being has come into being for the same reason. Because Jesus died and rose again and they believe it. Christians come in all shapes, in colors and sizes. They're old and young, rich and poor, free and persecuted, educated or not, exiles or indigenous. Yet, if they are a Christian, they are a Christian because 
They believe Jesus died and rose again for their sins. And that's the only thing that will make them a Christian. And so this new covenant promise was available to them and it's available to all who will repent and believe. And it is a beautiful offer of Easter. And so the question is for you. You're stuck at home. You're looking out at the news and the world looks grim. But the question is, will you be one of those who repents and believes? Will you respond in faith to God and the offer or the promise that He gives you that you can be His part of His people and He will be your God? Won't you respond to Him today? Jesus gave us a tangible symbol that points us again and again and again to the promise that He ratified on the cross in, in the empty tomb. And this tangible symbol uh, that points us to this new covenant is part of the Last Supper that He enjoyed on earth with His friends. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. It is a tangible reminder that was part of a meal. And he asked that when we remember him, we remember him by doing the same kind of thing. And I thought about this, and he, Jesus could have picked most anything. But he chose a meal. And why? I think Jesus wanted us to remember him when we did something physical. Something so indispensably physical that Every time we ate or drank, it would jog our memories of Him. So in this time where we are all physically distant from one another, there is this physical act of communion that God means to remind us that resurrection and life are not some physical construct or some ethereal metaphysics. But rather, I think the physical act of communion is to reinforce to us that Jesus Himself was physical on this earth. That He had a physical body that died, that was buried, and that physical body that rose again. This physical reminder is also a reminder that we will have a physical resurrection when Jesus comes again. And that physical resurrection will be the ultimate solution to our death problem. I think He intended the physicality of communion to be a reminder to His people in His absence that they would be reunited with Him in His resurrection. So the distance that we have between us and Jesus, the physical reminder of communion is to say, one day you won't be separated anymore. And I have to say as well, that while we are 
physically separated from one another. We will celebrate communion this morning as a reminder that our physical separation from one another is not near as strong as the bond that unites us. Because it is the resurrected Jesus who unites us. His physical resurrection and His life now in heaven, in our unity with Him, that's what unites us to Him and to one another. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have the elements ready here with you, I want to invite you to take the bread now and we'll remember the physical body of Jesus, broken, dead, buried, and raised for us. We're told in the letter to the church in Corinth, I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you join me as we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank You for the certainty that Jesus was a real person, that He died, was buried, rose again, ascended to Your right hand, and now makes intercession for us. That one day we'll be reunited with Him. One day we'll be reunited with one another. That our hope is certain. And Father, I want to pray for each person listening. I pray that Your Spirit would bring into their hearts, into their minds, faith to believe. Father, I ask that You would open their eyes to see how beautiful it is that they are loved by You. Father, I pray that You open their ears to hear the fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. To hear the words of assurance that this promise is for you. And so, Father, I ask that you would be gracious to us. That you would help us to believe. Help our hearts to be confident. Help our hope to be secure. And, Father, may we delight in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I ask this in His powerful name. Amen.